Good morning, everyone. My name is Diana Wilding, and I have been involved in habits since it began. And uh, I actually accepted Christ at a women's Bible study 43 years ago. So Bible study, women Bible studies have a really soft place in my heart uh, because of me coming to faith at one. And I am married. I have three children. Uh, one is deceased. And I have four grandchildren, one girl and three boys. They range in ages from 24 to 11. And uh, so let's get started this morning. I'd like to say a quick prayer before we start. And then let's start our lesson. Faithful and gracious Heavenly Father. We come to you with a grateful heart full of love for you and for one another. We are thankful for everyone here today as well as for those that, that later on will be listening to this. Our hearts are full with the awareness of your presence this morning as we study your word. I ask that you guide my lips to speak only words that will glorify your name and bring a fuller understanding to the hearts in mind of the women here that are listening. I bring this request to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I studied uh, the verses that I was given, I found that there were basically two sections to our lesson today. The first section includes five verses in James 4, 13 through 17. And it is addressed to merchants that are mostly believers. And then the second section is in James 5, 1 through 6, which is addressing the rich landowners that are mostly unbelievers. Because both of these sections are addressing a different subset of people, we'll explore the sections separately. And I've chosen to take the liberty to talk today about um, the warning to the non-believers in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 first. And then we'll talk about James 4, 13 through 17, where he is addressing mostly the believers. In a general sense, these six verses that we're addressing in James 5, 1 through 6, were written as a warning to the rich Jews that were landowners, that during that period of time, they controlled much of Galilee. James is chastising them, telling them their miseries at judgment will be many and for their retrib the retribution for their sins of coveting, their sins of oppression, their sins of sensuality, and their sins of persecution towards the believers in Christ. And those rich landowners were hardened in their unbelief to the point that they hated and they persecuted those who did believe in Christ. And it appears that James had two reasons for writing this letter. He wrote this, first of all, for the sake of the faithful believers. He's hoping that the oppressing, unbelieving, persecuting rich people would heed what he's telling them, and change how they're dealing with those workers. And two, he was also hoping the rich landowners would heed this warning and turn their own lives around for their own sakes. He wants them to know what's at stake here is where they will spend eternity. And how a person feels about money and possessions and those material things in our lives is a test which reveals the spiritual state of that person's heart. And James is obviously speaking to people who may appear on the outside to have faith in Christ and a love for God, but they are only outwardly doing what is necessary to try to convince others. This reminds us of the Pharisees that we've studied in the past with their hardened hearts. One thing for sure it's obvious that they have a love for money. And how much do you think they loved their money? Well, they loved it so much that their life had been totally controlled and governed by it. And they loved it so much that it has 
now revealed their hardened spiritual heart. And they loved their acquired riches so much that their generosity towards others had totally diminished. See, we see as a strong pronouncement of judgment in verse 1 where it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James is referring to the miseries of the final judgment rather than the miseries of this life here and now. He's telling them that an inescapable doom of final judgment is coming and they should have a reaction of weeping and howling. So let's look at the three separate sins that James is rebuking here. The first sin that he points out in these scriptures is hoarding. The verse, in verse 2, he tells them that all their riches have rotted. The riches he's referring to in this verse is generally food, grain, wheat, barley, perhaps even some meat that would be stored that's susceptible to decay. The term rotted, I think, gives us the latitude to translate the word riches or at least to see that it has the sense of food because it can easily decay. The rich of that day would stockpile their wealth until their barns were bursting at the seams and often let, letting their grain go to waste. We see the hoarder's attitude in, in Luke 12, 8, where it says, pull down the small barns and build bigger ones so I can store all of my riches there. So the second sin of a hoarder is storing up things such as garments until they are moth-eaten. And this sin is referring to the rich landowners who had adapted to a materialistic lifestyle that had created an attitude of eat, drink, and be merry. Those stored up things will not only be lost forever, but they will be moth-eaten. They will also be used as evidence at their final trial before God. Their hardened hearts had caused their actions to develop into a laziness towards others and to be blinded towards their needs, allowing disobedience to worm its way into their heart. And we see in verse 3 that they hoarded their gold and silver. The coinage that's being referred to is like the coinage that Jesus referred to in Matthew 6, where he said, Lay up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. The implication is that coins in those days were not pure silver or pure gold. They were a mix of alloy that could rust under the right circumstances. James is telling them that money stashed somewhere over the long period of time, such as buried in the ground, which was common at that, at that time, they didn't have banks, that it may rust. That's temporal too, just like the grain that decayed and the garments that were moth-eaten. So James's point to them is very basic. How sinful and foolish it is to hoard money that will rust, to hoard clothing that can be worn, to hoard food until it rots. And even if that doesn't happen, you, in your human form, will not remain. Their selfish, earthbound approach to life becomes in itself their own condemnation. We see James telling them that all that hoarded wealth will be used as a witness for the prosecution, declaring their guilt and the judgment of God will condemn them. And then we notice in verse 4, it shows us the second sin that James is referring to. And that sin is his, they're exploiting the poor. Not only was their wealth uselessly hoarded, but it was unjustly robbed from their victims in the first place. They weren't even entitled to those riches. Verse 4 says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who have mowed their fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Instead 
of being generous with the poor, they exploited them. Instead of giving to the poor, they withheld from them. And instead of giving them the small wage that they had earned, they kept it back. And then the third sin, and you will find that in verse 5, is the sin of self-indulgence. You'll notice that all three of these sins overlap one another. This third sin shows us that their robbed and hoarded wealth is spent on themselves. We see that in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. After increasing their wealth through robbery and after hoarding it all, they now use it for their own indulgence. If they wanted to buy it, they bought it. If they wanted to do it, they did it. When it says, you fattened your hearts, it means all their inner desires had been met. They sought out how they could fulfill, fulfill every self-indulgence available to man. And James is denounce, denouncing them not only for uselessly hoarding their money, not only for unjustly robbing, and not only for the self-indulgency, indulgently spending their, uh, but for their ruthlessly acquiring those riches. James tells them, you have condemned and killed the just. In this letter, he has pointed out to their hoarding, he has pointed out that their hoarding had led to fraud. Their fraud led them into self-indulgence, and their self-indulgence became so consuming that they would literally do anything to sustain that lifestyle. They were perfectly okay with wrongly condemning the innocent and using the legal system to justify murdering them through lack of provisions to sustain their own lives. We can observe here that they used the courts as an excuse to get what they wanted from the innocent. Apparently, the courts were corrupt as well as the landowners. And lastly, in verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James ends the indictment with an interesting statement about these poor, abused people where he says, and he does not resist you. It seems best that the he that is referenced here is the just, the innocent one who was abused, the innocent one who was destroyed for the sake of fulfilling the lust of the wicked wealthy. He doesn't resist you. Maybe we can submit that he is a believer, and in the grace of the meekness of Christ, he doesn't fight back. So now let's look at James 4, 13 through 17, and see what it's telling us. James 4, 13 through 17 says, Come now, you that say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, and do this and that or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin." In the footnotes of my Bible, it indicated that these five verses were directed at believers that had gone astray in their business practices. So we can assume that most of those businessmen know that God is there and as a part of their lives. They may even know that God has a will and a purpose and that he's sovereign. But what was once heart knowledge had diminished into a head knowledge for them, leaving them open for disobedience to take root within their thoughts. So 
It's apparent from this letter that those Christian merchants had taken on a different or a broader worldview in order to blend into the business world in which they were trying to make a living. Sounds familiar? But what James wants to point out is that they have gone too far and have become complacent by ignoring God's will and his sovereignty. In these verses, we see James addressing them concerning their failing to recognize God's providential control as well as the temporary nature of their lives. He tells them their arrogant, self-confident boasting is nothing more than a mist that can fade away at any moment, just like their lives. In other words, he is addressing them in a way that hopefully they will get, will get their attention and cause their bubble of arrogance to burst. In verse 13, it gives us an observation of what those typical merchants looked like at that time. He would have been someone in the upper middle class that was involved in commerce or trade of some sort. These merchants were not necessarily in the same class as those rich landowners uh, that we had just talked about. He would have also, it, it, the verses tell us that those merchants were totally ignoring God in their planning. And we can also observe how they were dealing with their customers. And finally, we, we can witness in those verses, we witness them planning their own lives. They're choosing their own location, their own timetable, their own operation, and even their own objective, which, of course, was we will make money. Planning their future and making a profit was what had consumed their thoughts. So much so, so much so that there was no room left for God and his counsel. In fact, these verses show us that his counsel had been pushed aside completely, allowing them to fall into step with the other merchants who did not love nor serve the Lord. You'll notice the title for our lesson is called Strong Warnings. But we can also observe three other possibilities for titles that could be placed upon this section of Scripture besides the strong warning. The three that I came up with was boasting with arrogance about what will happen tomorrow. And number two, it could be our heart attitude regarding obedience in following God's will instead of our own. And number three, it could be holding fast to our faith versus hanging on to our control. All four of those titles could certainly apply to this section of scriptures. But as I studied this section, what the Lord led me to was our heart attitude. You see, our heart attitude can either draw us towards obedience and the inclusion of Christ in our life, or we can be pulled into a self-absorbed disobedience. And that's a type of disobedience where we become so absorbed within ourselves and our own plans that we fail to recognize when we are being disobedient to God's will. So I'd like to take a deeper look into three attitudes that would, that would have brought about a negative or a wrong attitude in those merchants regarding their decision-making towards God's will. You will notice that all three of these acquired attitudes could cause us, as well as those merchants, not to include God in our plans for the future. The three we're going to talk about is the attitude of ignorance, and that's brought about by a lack of knowledge of his word. The attitude of omission, knowing God has a will, but ignoring it. And the attitude of arrogance, denying that God's will has any control over our lives. And then after those three, we'll talk about the attitude of obedience and what it looks like or should look like in our lives. And that's where we would have a heart's desire to seek 
and to do God's will. So we see the first attitude of ignorance in verses 11 and 12, where we see the issue or the implication is not what is said to those, uh, by those merchants. The issue is in what is not said. Nothing is mentioned about God's will. The point James is making is that none of us here today know anything about our tomorrow. None of us know what the future holds for our lives. We are ignorant of the future. It appears to me that James is drawing them back to a principle that's in Proverbs 27.1, where it says, Do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring. Since none of us know what's coming tomorrow, we should make our plans so that they encompass the contingencies of God, the will of God. The merchants' own self-confidence affected their attitude, causing them to skip over even the seeking of God's counsel. Just like James is asking those merchants, we ask ourselves as well. What do I put my faith in? Is my faith in tomorrow, of which I have no knowledge or control? Or is my faith in God, who holds my tomorrow in his capable hands? And the second negative and wrong attitude toward God's will is that of omission, or ignoring it. What does this attitude look like in our lives as a believer? Often, we allow ourselves to think, I know what he wants, and I know that he is sovereign. But you can still find yourself often turning away from obedience to his will. Like those merchants, we often find ourselves accepting within ourselves an attitude of omission. Although we are careful not to verbalize it, silently within our hearts we say, I'm not going to do it. So although it is not said out loud, our heart attitude is one of ignoring his will, and it is on display as much as if we had said it out loud. Although most of those merchants may be believers, as we are, they have taken on the attitude of omission by choosing to ignore God's generosity within their lives of abundance and status. They blindly go ahead making promises to themselves about life and prosperity, dreaming about all the great things in the world that they plan to make their own without any mention of God. He has been omitted. In verse 17, he says to them, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And most of the time we see this verse as the essence of an idea that's been reduced down to a sin of omission, which is not doing what we know we should. Oftentimes, even with the knowledge in our heart that we should, we go right ahead and walk past what we should be doing. So sins of omission are things that we've been convicted to do, but we ignore that conviction and we continue not to do it. No matter what your reasoning is, it's considered a sin of omission when you choose not to do what the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do. If you're ignoring what he wants you to do, it could be procrastination, where you say to yourself, someday I'll get around to doing this or that, or someday I will be more generous with my money, or one day I'm going to volunteer to help people more. So your omission could just simply be you think you're going to eventually get around to it. Or you keep walking past obedience because you're waiting to feel comfortable in doing what he's asked you to do. 
Many of us here have experienced that emotion. <laughs> and it causes us to never move forward with obedience. Our feelings or our emotions block our understanding that he would never prompt us to do something that he has not already paved the way for. Trusting in him and his sovereign control over what you've been asked to do is the catalyst, the springboard that takes you beyond your emotions and your fears, and it leads you to obedience to do God's will. James points out to them and tells us that a true believer doesn't omit God in their planning. They're, by their omitting God from their plans, he is telling them that they are not illustrating an attitude of a true believer to the onlooking world. A true believer knows they lack knowledge and is hungry to have more. They know they're fragile and can be led astray. And they know they need God, that life without him would be agony. And our third wrong attitude of the heart is arrogance. That's someone who does not think or take notice of anyone but themselves and their own goals. We notice in verse 16 how James speaks of the sin of boasting. It literally means to be loudmouthed or to speak loudly, and it has to do with either rejoicing on one hand, or on the other hand, it could mean loud-mouthing about your own accomplishments. In this context, those merchants were boasting about promising themselves life, prosperity, and great things in the world. They gave no regard or credit to God in their boasting. Proverbs 16.9 addresses this where it says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So as a believer, understanding God's sovereignty should cause us to design or plan all that we do with a submissive heart and a dependence on the counsel of God. The first group, the ignorant ones, that lacked knowledge, didn't consider that God had a will at all, which caused them to not even consider God in their planning. In contrast, the third group of arrogant merchants may have considered God and his will, but their boastfulness that had become embedded in their hearts caused them to think their plans were more important than pleasing God. All three of those hard attitudes that we've just discussed are harmful as they create within us a need, even a desire, to control all important facets of our own lives without a thought for God. Even as believers, we continually struggle with the same inclination to rebel against or even ignore God's sovereign control over our lives. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2, it says, The one who has taken on Christ no longer should live the rest of his life, his or her time, in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Again, this verse identifies the will of God as the driving force in the life of a child of God, linking it with our desire for obedience in doing God's will. Through our transformation that is taking place within us, through our sanctification, we know in our hearts the direction he chooses for us is ultimately for our own good. Don't we know that? Yeah. Knowing that truth, our hard attitude should be prayerfully and faithfully following the Lord's will. However, often we will lean away from instead of holding fast to the correct attitude towards obedience. Our leaning away instead of holding fast can ultimately lead us into one or more of the wrong hard attitudes, just like it had the merchants 
We are just as vulnerable as they, as we often allow our plans to be invaded by our surroundings, our own acquired secular view that penetrates into our vision of what our future should look like. We are bombarded daily with, it's all about me. It's a constant battle within us to keep those views from skewing our attitude about submission and obedience to God's sovereign will. I would venture to say that there is nothing more characteristic of a true Christian than a desire to do the will of God. It doesn't mean we always do it, but the heart's desire is there. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we dedicate our lives to him, we are given the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. He implants within our hearts a sensitivity to his conviction, which creates within us a desire for obedience. So when an event arrives and we have failed to do his will because of either procrastination or our lack of confidence or maybe just the wrong heart attitude, Regardless of why, we will often experience a level of shame or sadness that's brought about because of our lack of response to the conviction of our heart from the Holy Spirit. And that's a natural thing that happens to a believer. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 40 and verse 8 when he said, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written on my heart. And Ezekiel said, the law of God was to be written in the heart. And Jeremiah identified the law of conviction in the new covenant when he said, the law was written in the inward part of our soul. For as a new creation in Christ, God has planted his law of knowledge and the desire to fulfill that law within our soul. So we can safely say that it is a basic mark of a believer that he or she has a built-in desire to do the will of God. We just need a heart attitude that leans us towards obedience. We studied previously in chapter 4, earlier, chapter 4, verses 6, where James said that God gives grace to the proud, but to the hum- not <laughs> that God gives grace not to the proud, but to the humble. Jesus concludes chapter four by saying to the reader that we are all but a mist that will disappear from this earth. There's a vanity as well as a pride in looking to our own future without considering providence and the role it plays in each of our lives. The shortness and uncertainty of our life should serve to keep our vanity in check, curtailing our overconfidence in such projections into our own future. Some of you, just like myself, may become overwhelmingly convicted by the Holy Spirit and realize that you have either ignored or not allowed his will into your circumstances. You know that the Almighty possesses the knowledge and understanding of what is good, what is morally excellent, what is worthy of honor. He knows what is right. I think all of us have found ourselves in that category from time to time. We know and believe God. We know he is supreme. We know what his will is, and we just flatly don't do it. And often it can be a slow disobedience where we're just dragging our feet, resisting the path that we know he desires for us. Perhaps we're dragging our feet because of our own confidence in our ability to control our own lives. Or perhaps we had just ignored the nudging of the Holy Spirit Many times, after the fact, I've said to myself, Diana, you have really messed up. Because I'm feeling the weightiness of knowing 
that I was not obedient in seeking or doing God's will. Here I am, the person who believes in, that God is supreme and knows God has a will and a direction that I am to follow, but I just didn't do it. So what do we do besides prayer and asking for forgiveness when we've missed an opportunity or we've been dragging our feet, resisting his will? Often, through his mercy, he provides a way for us to choose obedience. Have you ever experienced this? Well, I have in three different ways, and I'll share with you the three ways the Lord has allowed me um, a second chance. The first way is when the Lord has allowed me a do-over. The Lord, thankfully, has given me many do-overs in my life of disobedience. But I'll share with you the most recent one that occurred. Many of you in here know that we've been trying to sell our home by Lake Patoka in southern Indiana for a very, capital V, long time. Last November, there was a couple that put an offer in on our home that was way below the appraised amount. We countered and agreed to go significantly below, below our listing price in hopes that they would come up on their offer. But regretfully, they only came up a few thousand dollars. Since we and the buyers were so far away monetarily, we walked away from the negotiations. I was deeply disappointed, as I had hoped that this was the couple that I had been praying for and the people the Lord had chosen for our home. Neither my husband nor I felt good about the decision that was made. We both felt regretful and troubled. Ten weeks later, the Lord gave us a second chance, a do-over. When our realtor called us and said she had talked with the couple and they were still interested in buying our home, our realtor then offered to take a discount on her commission rate if we would come down enough to meet the buyer's price. By this point, we knew the Lord had given us a chance, another chance, and we were sure this time that this was his will. So we jumped at that offer and signed the papers the next day. It was made clear that the Lord wanted us to let that house go for a much lower price because he wanted that young couple to have it. Ten weeks earlier, we were not willing to let it go, but he allowed us the opportunity for a do-over that gave us another chance at obedience in doing his will. Sometimes, in our single-mindedness, we forget that God works out details with his big picture in mind. He creates a tapestry that includes many people's lives, making us all intertwine together. So we had our do-over. And the second way God has brought me to obedience is through his slow and gentle method. There are situations where he will choose to lead you gently and slowly towards a right decision in doing his will. It's as though he takes your hand and navigates you methodically, step by step, towards obedience. He doesn't scream in your ear or pound on your shoulder to get your attention. He just gently and consistently nudges you towards obedience. When my family had the opportunity to move to Dallas 35 years ago, I adamantly opposed our relocating. But it was God, it was God's will that we make that move. He allowed me to experience his working patiently, slowly, and gently, bringing about situations that eventually created, with me, created within me a heart that was willing to change and allow that to enter into my life. By his gentle nudging, I was given a new and fresh attitude which changed my outlook, enabling me to look at the move in a more positive light. 
His gentle guidance had served to focus my eyes on the big picture, which created a surge of willingness in my spirit towards obedience. During those three months of fighting against our move, through prayer and his word, he had led me to a new understanding and a peace about leaving my life here in Zionsville and starting over in Dallas. And the gift that I experienced by watching his slow and gentle method early in my Christian life had allowed me to recognize and experience his attributes, especially his patience in my disobedience and his sovereignty. Through observing the contrast between my rebelliousness versus his patience and long-suffering, I was allowed to experience an expanded measure of understanding that he loves me and always, regardless of the circumstances, wants the best for me. And once your heart and mind knows this truth, desire towards obedience to his will intensifies in your life. And the third way that he brings me has brought me to obedience is he's provided someone to walk alongside of me. Someone that is used by God to physically hold your hand and lead you down a path towards obedience. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you are trying to make a difficult decision, a potentially life-changing decision, where you're struggling daily, searching for what the will of God is in that personal and complicated situation? I've discovered through my own personal experience that he will often place just the right person in your path to share that very private concern that you're struggling with. When you are gifted with that treasured friend, she will bring you back to scripture and she will encourage you to dig deeper. She will validate your emotions, but she won't let you rely on them or wallow in them. Often, after digging deeper in his word and examining your own heart attitude, you will gently arrive at a destination where you discover the direction you should take in order to pursue obedience and to follow his will. And sometimes he does all three because it's something that you really are struggling against and he will give you a do-over and put somebody in your life and he will still be gentle. So I've had... All three of those. And I challenge you when you leave here today to think about these ways that God has given us the do-overs and led us gently and brought that perfect friend uh, to walk the path with you. Think about the times that the Lord has done that because that's how we really enjoy the Lord is when we remember how he has worked in our life in those personal ways. You may be wondering here, why does he give us all of these chances to be obedient? Well, first, our obedience glorifies him. And glorifying him should be our primary goal in our Christian walk. And second, as his followers, he loves us unconditionally. Because he loves us, we are gifted with his mercy that is filled with second chances. And third, I believe he wants us to understand and experience the joy that can be lived out on our journey of obedience. That journey is not a single event, so experiencing joy is like a healing balm that he wants us to have. We look forward to that healing balm of joy as it serves to keep us motivated to do his will throughout our long life's journey. And after James had scolded those merchants for what they were doing wrong, he then set out to explain what they should be doing, saying, 
doing and saying in order to do better. We can find the positive side of what characterizes a believer in verse 15 when James says they ought to say, if the Lord wills it, we shall live and do this or that. We see in this verse that the blessing of acknowledging and obeying God, God's will, is a positive. If you want to live life the way God intended us to live it, then you, put your, put, then you should put God in the center of all of your plans. A true believer is one who seeks divine counsel. A true believer is also one who has a heart to obey the counsel that she seeks. And a true believer is sensitive to the working of the Holy Spirit's convicting of her heart. She's listening. Admittedly, there are times when all Christians will experience disobedience in their walk with the Lord. We'll experience times where we disregard and even have a heart of defiance against God's will. We may encounter something that we just can't believe he would ask because surely he knows that I would not be comfortable involved in this or that. But deep down in our hearts of hearts, there is that longing, that desire to do what he, his will dictates for our lives. When it comes to making our plans, our heart attitude should display to the world our willingness to submit our obedience to his divine authority, submit our obedience to his divine will, and submit our obedience to his divine providence. All three of these submissions are basic to the life of a believer. To put it simply, a Christian should accept the lordship of Christ over all of her plans. But the businessmen that James is addressing got way off track and were resisting submission to his authority, his will, and his providence. Psalm 143.10 tells us, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. We all, at some point, have said to ourselves and to others, can we really know what God's will is? As believers, we know God has a will for each and every one of our individual lives. He promises to lead you towards his will if you are willing to follow. Well, I have found, I found five universal statements in God's word that illustrates as a whole what God's will is for all believers collectively. So let's finish with these seven statements. God's will is that you, excuse me, number one, God's will is that you give your life to Jesus, that you be saved. Number two, God's will is that you embrace Jesus Christ as a son of God, the one who died and rose for your justification. Number three, God's will is that you be spirit-filled and spirit-controlled. Number four, God's will is that you be sanctified for living a pure life. And number five, God's will is that you be submissive, submission to the law of the land, submission to those in authority over you. Number six, God's will is that you be a model of virtue no matter what persecution you might be under. And number seven, God's will is that in all things he will be glorified. And that's what we know for sure about God's will. Now we're going to end with a song titled, The Lord Has a Will, and then we're going to be dismissed to our classes. Thank you.
Bye. 